Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One other memory I remember was really begging another family for some rice. And of course, they turned me down. So I have, I have a thing about rejection. It really teaches you to be self-sufficient. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to be in this position again. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. And look out for our how-to episodes where Claire and I dissect tricky career issues and share tips and advice to help you navigate the toughest of times. So don't stop. Sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello, everyone, and happy new year. It's been a bit of a challenging start to the year over here in Australia with all the bushfires here. Our love to anyone who's been affected by this crisis. And our thanks to the brave and tireless firefighters too. Now today, we're so excited to introduce to you our first guest for 2020, a woman who's literally climbed to the top of corporate America from the humblest and most challenging of circumstances. So true. Today, you get to hear from Q Delara, who is president and CEO of Honeywell Connected Enterprise, an important division of Honeywell with an agenda to capitalize on the Internet of Things. I've been friends with Q for a long time now, and I'm so happy we're getting the chance to share her incredible stories and career advice and wisdom with you, our listeners, today. Me too. And I'm also excited to share Q's amazing story of her family's escape from Vietnam as refugees when she was a young child. Such an extraordinary, tough and formative experience that drives her to this day. Absolutely. Look, this conversation we think is so special. So, but before we dive in, here's a little bit about Q. She grew up in Australia and has lived in and worked in the US now for nearly 20 years. After time in Australia at McKinsey and some other corporates, Q moved to the US to join Microsoft. From there, she worked in numerous senior roles at electronics giant TE Connectivity before joining the C-suite of Honeywell, along with its 110,000 employees. In this episode, you'll learn what impact Q's dramatic and dangerous escape from Vietnam has had on her life, how having to pay for her education and support her family saw her running a successful business by the age of 16 how she gave deep thought to what it takes to succeed in one's career and what the one key thing she realized she needed to develop was and how she goes about leading a major innovation play within a huge conglomerate. Fascinating stuff. So without further ado, please enjoy and be inspired by the humble yet ever so impressive Q 
Q Delara. Q, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Hi, Greta. Hi, Claire. Good to be with you. And we're so excited to have you on the show. Where are you speaking to us from today? I am in sunny Atlanta. Fantastic. Well, it's really personally very exciting for for me to have you as a guest on the show today because uh, you and I have known each other for almost 20 years. And so I'm so excited to have you on the show and the opportunity to share your amazing journey and career story. So thank you. And we'll can't wait to get sort of stuck in. And the way we start with all of our guests is by asking you, How do you describe to others, if you were meeting them at a dinner party, for example, what you do today, Q? Today, I have the privilege of leading Honeywell's Internet of Things effort, and I lead a software business within Honeywell with about 4,000 employees, and we're trying to change the world by leveraging digital technologies uh, into the industrial space and driving more productivity and safety for our customers. So it's it's a pretty fun job and a very exciting one. It sounds really exciting and I, I love your your mindset and we'll talk about that, I think, a, a little bit later. But before we do, what we generally like to do is really explore your childhood and why you are who you are. And I wondered if you could just share a small glimmer into the life that you led as a five-year-old. I'd be happy to do that. I was born in Vietnam and just a few years before the end of the Vietnam War. And my parents, my father was in the army and my mother was a lawyer in Vietnam. And obviously, you know, outside lost and, you know, things were pretty tough at this time. So the family was banished to a economic zone that really sort of a euphemism for a totally undeveloped part of the country with no electricity or infrastructure or housing or anything. And so my parents decided that the only recourse after my father was released from prison was to escape Vietnam. And so we were part of, you know, really millions of people that, you know, uh, embarked on that exodus, you know, in the late 1970s. So that's what happened. And we tried three times to escape Vietnam. Eventually, we were you know, allowed to leave because we said we were ethnically Chinese and there was a policy to expel ethnically Chinese out of the country. But when they, the Viet Cong says they allow you to leave, what they really meant was we'll go and destroy your navigation equipment and then you're, you're basically adrift. And that's, that's what happened. We got caught again at sea. They destroyed the navigation equipment and this river boat that we were on drifted in the South China Sea. So wow. um, after, yeah, after about a month, you know, we got shipwrecked off a very tiny island. I think it had about 5,000 inhabitants off the Filipino archipelago. And that's, that's kind of how we got to land. But it was quite a, a journey. You know, there's a happy ending, fortunately. But it was certainly, you know, phase one, a very tough journey. Phase two of it was being in the Philippines in a refugee camp for a number of months. And at this point, my mother was, you know, very heavily pregnant. So that was pretty tough. And we got, you know, fortunately, uh, asylum in Australia. And two weeks after we arrived in Australia, my mother gave birth to my sister. Um, So that's how we ended up in Australia. 
if you don't mind, if we just go back to the boat, just so that our, our listeners can have a, a little bit of an idea of, you know, get a visual in their heads of what that was like. Can you describe the scenario? You know, there you are floating for a, a month in the ocean. What does the boat look like? How many of you are there? The boat is a river boat that was really designed to carry cargo down the Mekong River. It wasn't really a seaworthy boat. And the point where we were released, it didn't have any way to steer the boat. So there was no sail, there was no motor. So it was really drifting. And, you know, this boat had about 75 people on it, very packed. And, you know, we were just really left there to the elements. And, and on this boat, did you have food? We had packed a week's worth of provisions, which unfortunately was stolen within a couple of days of us being on this boat. And it was very difficult because you don't, now you're drifting and you don't know whether, you know, when you're going to either be rescued or hit land and you don't have any provisions. And this thing went on for about a month. And so it was a very tough time. And at the time, I don't think my mother was even aware that she was pregnant. And so it was a very, very difficult time for the family. I just can't imagine, actually. At that moment when you realised your food had gone must have been just completely devastating. How do you pick yourself up from something like that? I mean, I suppose as your five-year-old, you're probably <laughs> not thinking about that. But Well, you know, I do have a very strong memory from the time because you have a strong instinct for survival. And I remember feeling quite angry as a five-year-old, like, how can this happen and the injustice of it all? And, you know, even when you're little, it's a very strong memory. And one other memory I, I remember was really begging another family for some rice. And of course, they turned me down. So I have, I have a thing about rejection. It really teaches you to be self-sufficient. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to be in this position again. Incredible. Incredible. Well, and that's clearly had, you know, huge impact on who you are and, and what you've become. But if we, if we talk about, you know, so you were given residency in Australia and you, mm -hmm. I think you moved to a coal mining town six hours out of Sydney. Yeah, the town's called Walker and Walker is a beautiful town. And it has, I think, I remember reading the Sydney Morning Herald several decades back, I think, that the oldest Australian was in the town of Walker. So I think the clean air and the, the environment was, you know, certainly good for uh, living. So we ended up there after a short stint in a detention centre in Australia, in Sydney. And it was very foreign. It was cold. I experienced snow for the first time, which was really exhilarating. And, you know, I just remember that the people in this town uh, were very kind. And I went to Catholic school, St. Patrick's. Uh, we had this house. There was an apple tree in the yard. And one day when I was on the bus going home and I really didn't know how to speak English, an older schoolgirl at my Catholic school, you know, gave me a gift, which was a bottle of fish sauce. And that was the it really was the most touching gift I've ever received. Yeah, because fish sauce is just such a key Asian ingredient, isn't it? It must have been just like foundational for you and so exciting to receive such a present. I don't know where she got it because we're in Walcott, six hours from Sydney. And if you remember the cuisine in, in 1979, <laughs> it's not Thai food. Exactly. So I think the thought that went into that and the empathy was very special. 
Absolutely. That's beautiful. And then as a family, you moved back into the big smoke of Sydney and ultimately you went to university. And you, from if I remember correctly, uh, sucker for punishment, you studied mathematics, yeah, as well I at did. some point? Yeah, <laughs> I did. And so if we fast forward to post-uni, you end up at the prestigious investment bank in Australia and globally now, Macquarie Bank, correct? I did. Luckily got a job doing some quant work for them and they were great, taught me a lot and I started to apply things I knew to to work, which is great. It was, it's always good to be able to contribute in that way. And that must have felt in some ways though, given your journey and even in uni, the sort of the kind of the fight for survival financially to get through uni, that must have been quite an eye-opener being at an investment bank and in that very sort of rarefied world of investment banking? Well, that year I had three jobs, Greta. I was working at Macquarie Bank probably 30 hours a week. I had a job at the university and I think that was about 15 to 20 hours a week. And then I had I had a tutoring business that I had set up when I was 16 because I had to pay to get through high school and support the family and, you know, pay for university. So I was doing that on the weekend, um, wow. so that's probably another, you know, at least another 16 hours a week. And so I had three jobs. It was exhausting. And now when I have a busy day, I remember that time when I, have, when I had three jobs and everything seems like a breeze. Wow, three jobs, that's really something. And then I guess it was not that long afterwards that you and I met at McKinsey. Mm-hmm. I remember you and I having dinner and I was blown away by then it seemed to me you had a really clear vision of what you wanted to do and become. And I remember us having dinner and I think you said something like, you know, I want to be running a whole division of a major kind of industrial conglomerate like GE at the time you said, and, you know, I want P&L responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. And now here you are today doing Exactly that. Frankly, you've been doing that for years in other uh, roles as well. But do you remember that? And does that ring true to you that you were then clear from about McKinsey times sort of 20 odd years ago for the career path you wanted to have? To be honest, Greta, I, it sounds like I had a lot more clarity than I really did in my, in my early 20s. I didn't have clarity. I mean, I really was driven by how do I support the family, get into a better place financially and really maximize the opportunities ahead. And and I really didn't, you know, even after I got a job at McKinsey, really understand the business world or what was out there. But similar to the, you know, how I got into the tutoring business, I mean, I, you know, the problem there was I had, I had to make a certain amount of money to pay for university, support the family, and I had to go to school. And so I thought, well, what could I do that can make money, not interfere with my going to school and hit all the financial goals? And so running a tutoring business seemed to fit that. And so I started off with, you know, a few students. And after a year, I had converted the living room, my bedroom and the garage into three classrooms and I had 100 students and five employees. And, And I did that for six years. So it paid for university and it paid for you know, the first house I bought in Sydney, which, as you know, is a very tough housing market to get into. Yes. And so that was my attitude probably at the time. 
uh, when I was at McKinsey, which is how do you, you know, what are the right goals and how do you maximize, you know, given what you know and aim for the highest goal you can with what you have. I had no idea that you had a hundred students in three classrooms and five staff. That is incredible. <laughs> wow, amazing. Not bad for 16. No, you're not wrong. Say that again. It's incredible. Well, Q, I mean, you, now you're sitting at the apex of corporate America. You know, from your journey from, let's say, McKinsey to the apex of corporate America, how have you sort of made those career decisions to get there? I think it helps to have a long-term goal. And for me, it was probably, look, I wanted to run a business and I, I didn't want to be in consulting. And that was about as specific as I could get because I had started a business on my own when I was 16 and I had learned how to manage cash flow and learn how to manage employees and offer a product to the market that the market wanted. So I had a sense that I wanted to do that. And so I didn't really have a good plan, if you like, to break that down. But I thought, okay, there were certain principles that are important. One is have a long-term goal and aim for something high and, and think big. But at the starting point, you have your hands and you have the tools that life gives you and the education you have. So you have to work hard. And no matter where you are and what station you have in life, you can always work hard. And so that's what I worked on first in any job. You know, I want to go to bed every day knowing that I gave it 100%. And so when you do that, opportunities uh, come to you because you're making a contribution. So unfortunately, there is no grand master plan. <laughs> yes, but it sounds as if, you know, obviously work hard is the first principle. But the second thing it sounds as if you've done is taken those opportunities, even if they're scary. Would that be right? I think that's right. I think, well, it's not to be reckless in going after anything that looks, you know, mildly dangerous or, you know, stupid to do. I think you want to go where you, you have to have some idea of maybe where the technology is heading or the market's heading and be prepared to take some risks. And for me, I always said to myself, I've been in a lot of unfamiliar places and I had the confidence to figure it out, even though I knew that, okay, well, even in this job, what's going to happen to the software business? Who knows? Who knows how the market's going to react to it? But I have confidence I will figure it out. So that's always helped me to pick the right opportunities and the right risk reward, because if you don't take risks, then you're not going to get the return. So that's, I guess one thing that's important. And then, you know, I'd say that the third thing is it's not enough to work hard. You have to become an expert at something or master something. And if you don't have mastery, then you don't have anything that distinguishes you from somebody else. So work hard is essential, but it's a path towards becoming a master at something. When you have something special, then people want that. And that's when opportunities open up. Yeah. Does having mastery mean that you need to focus? I don't think it means that you have to narrow your opportunities, but you do have to focus on being really, really good at something. And that takes practice and it takes energy. And if we take you as an example, when did you make a, 
assuming you did make a conscious decision, when did you make that decision of what you would become a master or what would you have mastery in? I would describe it like this. So when I was a quant at Macquarie Bank, I knew that I was very good at numbers and I could use computers and I could, you know, do a lot of analysis. And I spent a lot of hours figuring out how to do that. But I realized that doing that was not really different from anyone else good at maths and learning and using computers. But I figured out that actually what would make me a really good analyst would be if I would be able to give insights as to what I was analyzing to people who were asking for it. And so this is a distinctive way of delivering the analysis versus here's the analysis. And so that's what I would say is what mastery is. Mastery is what's that insight or additional value add that no one else is thinking about. It's a little bit different than saying, hey, I'm going to decide I'm going to be a good carpenter. At every job that you do, you work hard, but how do you offer that extra level of insight or mastery, that value add that no one else is thinking about? And that's what distinguishes you in whatever you do. And how would you say that people like, say, your boss, the CEO of Honeywell, how would he describe your mastery? Yeah, so in the role like I have now, I'm supporting the CEO. The CEO obviously has a lot of influence on the company. And I think it's easy to want to please the CEO and make the CEO happy by agreeing with him. This happens a lot to people in positions of authority. And for me, that's not value-add. Value-add is actually having an independent perspective and offering the best counsel you can to someone who's in an incredibly lonely job who probably has a lot of people saying, we agree with you, a different perspective. And that is another example of where I can offer in this role mastery or something value-added and distinctive than what others would do. And it takes courage because it takes courage to disagree with the CEO. For sure. But I'm disagreeing not to disagree, but I'm disagreeing at times in order to provide a perspective that would be valuable to him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I like the way that you reframe that, actually, because you're not actually necessarily disagreeing. You're just bringing a different perspective. And there are multiple perspectives to any problem. That's right. And that's valuable to someone in a position where they're making decisions. They need to have different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds, you know, you sound really confident when you're saying that. And you, you know, you sound like somebody who really is very sure of themselves. Have you ever struggled with, you know, self doubt in your career? All the time. Really? Yes, all the time, every day. It's funny when you read biographies of, you know, people's backgrounds or resumes, I mean, it looks like Hollywood. I mean, it's a spectacular, it's amazing. That what people look like on paper and really everybody's the same. One of the things I learned early, early on is people would go, well, what are senior teams like? And, you know, what's it like in the C-suite? And I always say to people, you know, it's like any other team. It has the dynamics of any other team. So I learned not to be intimidated by where people are in the hierarchy because essentially they're still people and they have doubts they have worries and they have pressure. But I think it's finding that inner confidence to say, I I may not know the answer, but I will figure it out. 
and that, you know, drives one forward. And it sounds like that's your kind of mantra to yourself when you do have self-doubt, you know, I'll figure it out. Are there other things and tips and tools that you use when you do feel that you're not feeling confident in yourself? Well, the primary one is, for me, the focus is always how do I make the right contribution? How do I work on the right problem and have an impact on the business? Because the rest of it will come. I think if you worry too much about your career and and if you want to advance your career by other means other than merit or the contribution you're going to make, then I think you make bad decisions and you make wrong decisions. But if you focus on what is right for the business or the organization that you're in, then you can always be confident that you are driving towards the right North Star and then the rest of those things should follow and have confidence that that should happen. I learned early on to do this and whenever I did that, it's always been very beneficial. So if a CEO asked me for my opinion, I give my opinion and I, I don't really think about, well, is this what they want to hear? Because that's not being truthful to what's really going to help solve a problem. And so I'm always confident I can go to sleep at night knowing that I gave it my best every day. Yeah, I think that's really crucial, but it requires you to learn how to step back and be reflective about what is the most important thing for the company. And I think most people are sort of in this hamster wheel you know, where they're, they're, they're just running. How do you create those times to be reflective? Or do you? You have to because not, I mean, people like to project the view that they're superhuman and they can work without sleeping and they don't need vacations. And they, you know, I don't think, I think that's nonsense. I think people need time to recharge and you have to find ways to manage your time and your energy. Because if you don't have energy, you can get that from your family, you can get that from exercising, you can get it in lots of different, it, it's very individual and personal to how you derive energy. But if you don't have energy yourself, you can't give energy to an organization and you can't bring that organization along. And if you can't give hope to an organization, then you can't really propel and move a large group of people towards a goal. So it is extremely important to manage time and manage your personal energy for me, that's spending time with my family. It's reading a lot. It's, you know, spending time with, you know, people like yourselves to think about, okay, maybe there are other ways of thinking about things. You know, you touched upon when giving honest uh, opinions to your CEO that his job is a lonely job, but I imagine you're running a whole division of Honeywell. You have 4,000 people in that division. That being the leader of Honeywell Connected Enterprise is a can be a pretty lonely job too. How would you describe it? These are lonely jobs. You know, there are tough decisions and sometimes you have to make decisions that aren't very particularly popular with the organization, your colleagues, but they may be the right ones. And so you have to be able to persuade people and withstand the criticism. And so if you make decisions by popular opinion, I think you'll make the wrong decision. So it's, it's quite hard to take all the inputs, think about what the right thing is, and then, you know, follow that direction, despite what people say. And oftentimes my team will completely disagree with me in a certain direction, but my job is to make the right decision for the organization for the long term. But you know what? You've got to swing for the fences. And I think of them as you always have to, orient yourself towards the sun and these jobs are like being Icarus. You want to 
fly towards the sun. Maybe your wax wings will hold up. Maybe they won't, but you, you have to give it a whirl. And if you don't, you'll never know if you, you'll make it or not. Yeah, it means you haven't extended yourself and the business as, as much as it could be. That's such a great analogy. I think Seth Godin talked about that too, didn't he? So, you know, when I knew you, I, if I was asked, I would describe you as an introvert. What have you had to work on to become a leader that does give hope and paints a picture of a, an exciting Icarus near-to-the-sun future? So... <sighs> The irony of this is people in my company believe I'm a good speaker by and large, which is hilarious because, as you know, I am an introvert and very private and shy, and I really don't like to talk to people. So I've had to really work at public speaking and being able to really tell stories. So it's taken a number of years to work at, but, you know, I really enjoy it now, and it's something that I I really wanted mastery on. So I, you know, plucked up my courage and put myself out there. And so I thought to myself, well, I could be anxious about speaking or anxious about not speaking. So why don't I just be anxious about speaking? And that's what I've done. I love that way of thinking about it. What would your advice be to no doubt many listeners uh, who are thinking to themselves, yeah, yeah, I don't like speaking either. What would your advice be to them? I think you can start small but in simple ways, which is if you're in a meeting, no matter how intimidating that meeting is, my advice is whether it's a board meeting or, you know, big business review or some something like that, within the first 15 minutes, make one comment or ask one question. Because if you do that, you'll break the ice for yourself and you won't be anxious about not speaking. The longer the meeting goes when you haven't said anything, then you're really invisible to the group and no one knows that you're really there. So it's important that your presence is felt and you can do that by asking a question or making a comment in the first 15 minutes. So there are some practical things that help you get comfortable with the setting that you're in. On that note, you know, I know you're working in a very male-dominated industry now and it's something we hear quite a lot from both the corporates and the females we work with in, in our leadership development business, as well as um, listeners of the podcast, sometimes being heard, you know, when you do speak up at the important business review meeting, that it can be harder as a woman to get your message across and not be sort of overlooked. You know, what tips have you got from the point of view of, you know, having your message land and being heard? I think if you work hard in, a, in an area, and you achieve mastery, how can anyone else have as much content or insights around an area than you can? So that's the first step to building the inner confidence you have. Because oftentimes people have to have confidence in you first before they have confidence in your plan. And if you can't project confidence, then it's a little bit more detrimental because people aren't going to, you, you're not speaking with authority. And, but to me, the source of that confidence is mastery in an area and really reaching out for that extra value add that you can offer people that no one else can. So, you know, there have been times where I have colleagues that interrupt me. I had one colleague one time just interrupt me constantly. I would be saying something within 30 seconds of my speaking, he would interrupt me and I would call him out on it. I, I just don't. You know, I'm not going to be a wallflower to let people talk over me or be impolite like that. I, I make it very clear. And sometimes people don't really realize they're doing it. 
and they adjust their behavior. It's the one thing you can change in the whole world is your behavior, but you've got to stand up for yourself. I'd love to shift gear now and and think about the future in terms of the amazing, exciting work that you must be doing on a daily basis at Honeywell Connected Enterprise in the terms of you know, IoT and innovating on behalf of the whole organization, really. What one or two key lessons or principles or philosophies do you think about when trying to help a massive corporate innovate? I would say two main things, Greta, to answer your question. The first one is people tend to dismiss technology because they typically find new technologies to be inferior to what they're currently using. So just as an example, when new technologies like mobile phones come out, well, when the first mobile smartphones came out, well, they they were fairly dumb. They didn't have a keyboard. They didn't have as much processing power as a PC. And they had very limited applications on them. But new technologies typically do one thing really well. And in the case of the mobile, it had location services. So you can imagine that you could never have a business like Uber without the mobile phone. You couldn't do Uber from the PC. So new technologies do one thing really well, while they, you know, even though they're inferior to everything else. And to help people realize this so that they don't immediately dismiss the impact that new technologies might have on the core business. So, you know, blockchain is very similar. Blockchain is really bad as a computing paradigm, but does one thing really well, and that's trust. So I try and help people understand the impact of this in a different way than you might sort of see in the literature and how, you know, people in the core business might react to it. So that's one thing I would say. The second point is I think in order to do something new, I think at the heart of it, you have to respect differences and appreciate differences. And I think this is sometimes missed in diversity conversations. You know, if we're trying to get into software, we need to have people who know software and we need to attract this type of talent into the company. And it's hard to do if you don't fundamentally respect differences because you can't even see the talent. So a lot of my job is to help people understand the talent, figure out where they are, and then help them come into a company that isn't accustomed to working that way. It's a really hard job doing that because, you you know, when you grow up in a company super successful in one way, you don't think there's another way. And so that's been a very interesting journey to help people see, you know, we can't be successful without a different skill set, a different set of capabilities. I've had lots of, spent a lot of time on onboarding and helping people shorten that time to be productive. Because it's at that critical stage where you can really imbue the right culture of how we work. Because when you first come into a company, you look around, you go, well, who's successful and what are they doing to be successful? So I've got to, I spend a lot of time making sure we have the right culture to be successful. And that culture oftentimes is very different from the parent company. Because what works for, what processes work for a very large you know, $10 billion division is very different for a $1.5 billion software division. Yeah, no doubt. And how have you brought your current employees that maybe have worked at Honeywell for, as you say, you know, up to 40 years, how are you bringing them into understanding the future of work and perhaps reskilling in some ways? 
it's not what you say, what you believe, it's what you do. And sometimes it's funny, people who visit me in Atlanta go around looking for my office before they realize that I don't have an office and my leadership team doesn't have an office. You know, even though I'm very senior at Honeywell, I don't have an office. You know, I don't even have a cube. I'm at a desk on the floor with our team and we're trying to build the right software culture because we need to have extreme collaboration in te- you know, bringing you know, great solutions for our customers and we can't have war. So I focus a lot on how do we, what do we do, how do we behave that is important, not what we say, not what's in the value system, not what is it written down but how people work and a lot of thought is put into thinking about that and making sure that when people come in, those are the behaviours that we reward for. What excites you most about where technology is, is heading? I think in the Internet of Things, the potential to drive significant productivity and safety outcomes for you know, the critical infrastructure that we're in, we're in aviation, we're in buildings and warehouses and manufacturing. It's a multi-trillion dollar part of the economy. And if we can just get 1% productivity improvement, it's hundreds of billions of dollars of value that we can create in the economy. And that's very exciting. I'll give you an example. You know, Honeywell has, runs a lot of building automation and there's about 17 to 20 million buildings in the world. So we have about 30% of this market. So we could save a significant amount of energy that these buildings consume. I I didn't realize this because when I put the numbers together, these buildings consume about a quarter, something like 20, 25% of the world's energy is being consumed by buildings. I I had no idea. It was a huge, staggering number. If we can save 25%, energy reduction in how to make buildings more efficient over and above everything else they do, then we can drive 1% reduction in the world's energy consumption, which is, I think, a big deal. And that is, is a big super deal. exciting thing to be able to do. And that's one area that we're working in in this business. So the potential of technology to really improve lives and you know drive sustainability and as well as you know really good economics for our customers is you know, very exciting. I love that, Q. And I think that is a perfect example in the moment of your mastery of bringing a new insight because, you know, we've never heard that data point before. I'm sure you probably surfaced it and came up with it. You said you hadn't heard of it. So it's fascinating. And yeah, how exciting is that? Well, given you have a very big job to do saving the world's energy consumption on that, we should get to wrapping up. And one of the questions we ask our guests typically is thinking back, you know, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self? I probably, one of my failure modes is I probably don't have as much balance and probably not as present as I would like to be. And I think, if, you know, to my younger self, I would say, it's, you know, it's good to ha- work hard and uh, achieve things, but it's also important to have balance and because balance gives you personal energy and personal energy is very important to, you know, helping you be successful and be happy um, and spending time with the family and so forth. So that's one thing I would say to myself is more balance, being more present makes you all rounded. Otherwise, you be- you become a robot and Anyway, that's the feedback I get. And so I'm reacting to that feedback of, you know, 
don't work so hard and and have a bit more balance. Right. Yeah, that's that's great advice. So it's that time to wrap up and just say thank you so much, Q, for such a wonderful conversation and an insightful conversation. If our listeners wanted to find out more about more about you or more about Honeywell Connected and the type of work that you're doing, how would they reach you? They can go to honeywell.com and there's a button called Honeywell Forge, which is all about my business and what we're doing to change the world. So I encourage you to go there. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. We'll leave you now to your the rest of your busy day. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your insights. And we'll hope to speak to you very soon. Likewise. It was great to catch up. I had a good time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Q. Thank you, Q. Q really is such an impressive thinker and communicator, isn't she? Yeah, totally. And that's all the more impressive given she's a self-confessed introvert. I know. What I'm blown away by or have been today is just the detail of the hardships she faced as a child. I've known her for more than 20 years, but I don't think we've ever shared that amount of detail before. It's really striking. Yeah, for sure. The thing I loved in our discussion was how she talked about having to teach people how you want to be treated. Absolutely. And given Q's years spent working in male-dominated industrial conglomerates, I'm guessing she's probably had the chance to practice that to a fine art now. Absolutely. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be a how-to episode. See you then. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.